have several scriptures tonight to read to you. You can turn to them or just listen. But they cover the three points I want to make uh, based on the second Helvetic Confession, chapter 10 of it. But I want to begin with just a brief reading from 2 Timothy, chapter 2. I'm just going. I'm only going to read verses 24 through 26 of chapter two of Second Timothy, and then I'm going to move uh, through the others swiftly as I can uh, to John, the Gospel of John, and then to Philippians, and then to Luke, and all each of these scriptures pertain to uh, come under one or more points. I like to make uh, this evening. This is the word of God, dear people, so let us hear it. Second Timothy chapter two, verses twenty-four through twenty-six. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle to all, apt to teach. Patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure would give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who is taken captive by him at his will. And then moving to the Gospel of John, chapter 6, well, chapter 3, verse 16, you know that probably all by heart. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then I want to move to John chapter 6, verses 35 to 40, and read verse 44. John chapter 6, verse 35, which says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger. He that believes on me shall never thirst. But I said to you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which sent me, that of all which he has given me I should lose nothing but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise up at the last day. And verse 44 says, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, an interesting scripture is, comes from Philippians chapter 4, and it pertains to one of the points I want to make. In its first three verses of chapter 4 of Philippians, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy, my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved, I beseech Euodius, and beseech Syntyche, and they, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. 
And I entreat all, uh, thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labor with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with others, my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. And why I say that's an interesting passage is because not only is Paul convinced that he's in the book of life, but he's convinced that these other people are in the book of life. So you can know that someone else is a Christian, someone else is in the book of life. You know, we have that uh, idea that you can't judge the heart. Maybe not fully and maybe not uh, <coughs> without error, but you can. Paul says right here, these people are in the book of life. And then finally, this teaching from Luke, teaching of our Lord, uh, from Luke chapter 11, I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. It came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us how to pray, and John also, as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, When ye pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive every one that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go to him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble be not, the door is now shut, my children are with me in bed, and I cannot rise and give thee. I say to you, Though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. And I say to you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and, it sh- and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone that asks receives, and he that seeks finds. And to him that knocks, it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then be an evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children. How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? May God bless his word to our hearts. Again, Heavenly Father, we come before thee this day. Once again, in the morning we came, and in the evening now, in prayer and supplication, that you would bless us through your word heard. And we ask this, Father, O Father God, 
In the name of thy dear Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, last time I spoke about predestination last evening. And uh, I pointed out this morning that I mentioned three things about predestination or election, both are the same, that uh, sort of facets on the diamond doctrine. It's a, it's a tremendous doctrine. It runs throughout the scripture, the golden thread, and it has facets. And as you look at the facets of this doctrine, it begins to shine brighter and brighter to you. I talked about predestination last time from the Second Helvetic Confession, uh, having to do with grace. Predestination is out of grace. In other words, only God's children, only his chosen, as Jesus points out, the ones that the Father draws towards him, that will never be lost, that will inherit eternal life or everlasting life, only they are given grace. So predestination is out of grace. The elect are given grace. And only the elect. That's why everybody doesn't believe. Because it's so simple. You want to live forever? Just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and live forever and ever. No, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Because you don't have grace. I also spoke about predestination as being predestinated not by Christ, although that may be true, but in Christ. You're not elected directly. God elects us on account of Christ or in Christ. We are in Christ Jesus. Before the foundation of the world, we're in him. So we're predestinated, we're elected in Christ, being in Christ in a relationship with him. Now it's revealed to us in time, but we're already in Christ. The third point I made last time was predestination has a purpose. And the purpose is, first, foremost, the glory of God. That God elects sons and daughters to join him in heaven through Jesus, faith in Jesus Christ, for a purpose, his glory. And not only his glory, but their glory. For he has elected a people through faith in Jesus Christ, through grace, to be glorified. To live forever, body and soul in his presence, in a new world. A new world order. A new paradise. Tonight, I want to talk about some other facets of predestination. This is how glorious and big and huge this doctrine of election is. It travels through the Word of God. And you look at a, you know, like a diamond, a facet here and a facet there, and it just shines and it does different things with the light. There's light coming from this doctrine. I want to talk about three things, again. From the second Habitic Confession, chapter 10. Uh, predestination and admonitions. We'll talk about what, they, what, what, what is an admonition. And predestination and faith and assurance. 
Faith and assurance kind of go together. And predestination and temptation. Tempting predestination. Tempting you who believe in predestination and election. And tempting God. That doctrine. I want to talk about that. Now the first thing is admonitions. And the second half of the confession says, admonitions are not in vain because salvation uh, <clears throat> salvation proceeds from election. So it's not in vain, Augustine points out, it's not in vain. Salutary admonitions are not in vain towards those who are predestinated or those who are elected. Now, why did this, why, why, why did this come up? Why did Bullinger, who wrote the Second Helvetic Confession, deal with this? Well, because there were enemies. There were those who opposed the doctrine of predestination and election. And what they said was, was something like this. If predestination is true, these are the enemies. These are the antagonists. If predestination is true... Nothing can hinder the salvation of the elect, and nothing can prevent the, uh, the condemnation of the reprobate. In both cases, admonitions are rendered unnecessary. The argument raised by the enemies of, predestinating, of predestination is that since the Scripture con- contains innumerable admonitions, the teaching of predestination cannot possibly be true. Why would you admonish? Why would you rebuke? Why would you confront somebody that they need to stop doing what they're doing? Start doing the right thing. If they're predestinated, if they're elected, they cannot lose their salvation. Right? So what are admonitions? Just to give you a definition, admonitions include setting forth our calling as the will of God. They include encouragement to carry out our calling faithfully, along with appropriate incentives. And they include warning against failure or refusal to do our calling as we ought. So you're elect. You're called to everlasting life. An admonition would say, now act like it. You say you're a Christian. Act like a Christian. Behave yourself like a Christian. The enemies are saying, you don't need to say that. It doesn't matter. They're going to be saved. But the Bible says, admonish, correct, rebuke, warn. And encourage as well. Admonish the people of God. Now why is that? Because my title of my sermon uh, points this out. Decree, the decree is predestination or election. And the means go together. God has ordained means for the elect. And the means are For one, admonition. God says that the people who are elect are going to hear and they're going to respond to the admonitions 
in the Word of God. That's how it works. Just take the argument that they give, some do, against prayer. Why pray? God knows the outcome. God knows his plan. God knows what he's going to do before you say thing, you say it, or if you want it or not. God's going to do whatever he does because God's sovereign. God controls all things. We believe in providence, right? So why even pray? If God's going to heal me, he's going to heal me. If he's not going to heal me, he's not going to heal me. It doesn't matter, right? But the idea is that God ordains means. And one of the means he uses for his people is prayer. You are to pray. You are to learn how to pray. You are to pray his word after him. You are to pray and open your eyes and see the will of God in your life. Prayer is the means by which he, or he, he gives to us to use to communicate with him and for him to communicate his will to us. There's a relationship going on. Prayer is a means for us to develop a relationship between ourselves and our God. So, means are never decoupled from decree. God decrees, predestinates his people. But he uses means to do it. And one of the means is admonitions that come from the Bible. You know, not just any correction, any rebuke, any argument, but those that come from the Scriptures. And that's why I pointed uh, to, uh, for example, uh, 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 to 26. The servant of the Lord must not strive. Oh boy, how many of us have striven with one another, arguing with one another over this, that, and the other thing? We shouldn't do that. I mean, I do it. I know. and It's not, it's not, it's not good. It, it, it doesn't... It doesn't have a good look. It really doesn't have a good look. If you're so calm, I mean, if you really believe and you're confident in what you believe, why are you, why you you're arguing and blowing up? If you're so confident, don't strive. But be gentle to all, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those who oppose themselves to the truth. If God prevention will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil and be taking, uh, who has taken them captive by him at his will. In other words, there are Christians that uh, have become captivate, captivated by the devil or captivated by wrong doctrine, uh, wicked ways, or whatever it may be. And you, as a teacher are to instruct them from the Word, patiently, gently, with meekness. And peradventure uh, they will hear. For God, if they're elect, God will give them ears with which to hear, and they will repent. The means is that gentleness, that meekness, 
that courage as well to bring the word of God, the admonition of the Lord to the face of the, the sinner in the hope, in the prayer that they will receive the grace of repentance and change. The means is the admonition. God will, will change them. God, uh, quoting, God uses admonitions to keep his people on the right way and to bring his children back to the, to the right way after they have strayed. At the same time, he uses admonitions to leave the reprobate wicked hardened in their sin and as an aggravation of their guilt. Think of it this way. In another place, the Apostles talks about the preaching of the Word. The same Word, preached by the same person in the same manner. To the one, it's a savor of life, the elect. To the other, it's a savor of death and damnation. Same thing. It's, it, that's the way it, it, admonitions work. You bring them forward to any and every, whether the person is elect or reprobate, you don't know. But God knows. But he uses that admonition as a means. He uses that admonition, that rebuke, that correction, whatever it is, that training, to bring his wayward child back home. If I may say it this way, he uses us, brothers and sisters, he uses us to help others, to help one another. That's the first point I wanted to make. Oh, by the way, one other thing, I'm reminded, that it's not just the pastor that admonishes. You are to listen to the elders who bring an admonition. You are, as uh, young people, are to, you're to listen to your parents who admonish and rebuke and correct their wayward child. Or your teachers, especially Christian teachers, when they bring an admonition or a correction. In other words, it applies to us all. But first and foremost, to the pulpit. And that's why discipline starts, sort of doesn't end, but it, it begins from preaching the word of God. If someone is in preaching and in his preaching bringing admonitions, rebukes, corrections to the people of God, he's not preaching the word of God correctly. Now, you don't do it every sermon. That's not, that's not my point. But if you don't do it at all, if you just want to you know, talk about love, 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 Peace, 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 chom, 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 and never bring a negative thought before the people of God and confront them in their sin, whether individually or corporately, you're not preaching. Admonition goes along with the decree of predestination. You're violating predestination and that doctrine. <clears throat> the next thing is. Uh, whether we are elect, uh, it's under the uh, 
this head here in chapter 10, towards the end of the chapter of the Second Havitic Confession. We therefore find fault with those who, outside of Christ, ask whether they are elected. And uh, what has God decreed concerning them before all eternity? For the preaching of the gospel is to be heard, points out. Bollinger, Bollinger points out in the second Havitic Confession, like what, what Jesus said. That uh, in, in the Gospel of John, for example, where he says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes. Well, how does faith come? How does belief come? Faith comes by hearing the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of God, as Paul says in Romans. So the gospel must be heard, and it is to be believed, and it is to be held as beyond a doubt that if you believe and are in Christ, you are elected. Do you believe? Ask yourself, do I really believe all this? Do I believe in Jesus Christ? Do I believe that he died for my sins? Do I believe in the resurrection? If you believe, you're elected. You've been predestinated. Those who are not, do not believe. Very simple to understand. Why don't people believe? Why don't people, They're not elected. Now, you don't know who's elected, and you don't know how much time it's going to take, and so you, you continue to try and pray and all that. Yeah, that's good. But bottom line, if a person goes to his deathbed and just doesn't want to have anything to do with Jesus, doesn't believe in it, he's not predestinated. He's not elected. Hasn't been given grace. Salvation's grace, salvific grace. For the Father has revealed unto us in Christ the eternal purpose of his predestination, as I have just shown you from Timothy, Bullinger points out. There is therefore above all to be taught and considered what great love of the Father, the Father towards us is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. We must hear that the Lord himself daily preaches to us in the gospel how he calls us and says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It is not the will of, it is not the will of my Father that one of these little ones should perish. Let Christ, therefore, be the looking glass in whom we may contemplate our predestination. We shall have a sufficient, sufficiently clear and sure testimony that we are inscribed in the book of life if we have fellowship with Christ, and he is ours, and we are his in true faith. Have you ever met someone, perhaps, maybe, it's come to your mind? Am I truly saved? Have you ever asked that question? Or someone said that, I, I, I believe in Jesus, I, I, I think, I, I don't, but I don't know if I'm really saved. Have you ever met someone like that that's not sure of his salvation, even though he believes the Bible's the word of God and he believes Jesus is 
the Son of God and all that, but he's not sure that he's going to be saved. I think we just had somebody recently who who got sick and uh, had a, a, a very bad experience with illness and it threatened his life and went to church for many years, perhaps all his life, don't know, but for many years and heard the gospel and believed in it and all that stuff. But now he gets sick and he's perhaps on his deathbed and he's doubtful that he's saved. Brothers and sisters, if you believe the Lord Jesus Christ and believe he is the bread of life, you really believe that Jesus came, he died for you, he died for sinners, and you believe that. And you believe he rose again from the dead on the third day. You believe that in him, trusting in him is the only way to get to heaven. The promise is from the Gospel of John that I read to you just a little while ago in chapter 6, that the Father who draws you to Jesus, to believe in Jesus, has promised you everlasting life. Why do you believe in Jesus and not believe in everlasting life. If you believe the one, you must believe the other. They're connected. And you must believe that the Father is the one that drew you. And the promise that Jesus said, you believe in Jesus, right? You believe in the Son of God, you believe His Word. He said that I will lose none, not one. But I will raise you up at the last day. You are insulting your Jesus. You're not believing in... If you don't believe in everlasting life, in eternal life, if you don't believe that you'll be, you'll be raised up at the last day, that you're going to live in the new paradise, the new world, then you don't believe in Jesus. Because to believe in one means you believe in the other. Faith and assurance, they go together. I'm assured that I am going to spend eternity in the arms of God, so to speak. Because I believe in Jesus now. I believe in everlasting life. I believe in heaven. I believe in the new world. I cannot separate one from the other. If I have faith in Jesus Christ, I'm assured of my election, my predestination. Predestinated unto glory. <clears throat> because faith in Christ assures of election, Bullinger, uh, Bullinger uh, concludes by saying, Let Christ therefore be the looking glass in whom we may contemplate our predestination. And you know, that, that doctrine of predestination, doctrine of election, means that you are elected unto everlasting life. You are chosen by God to spend eternity with Him. If you look to yourself, 
if you look to someone else, if you look to the pastor, that's when you begin to doubt. Look at that guy. He's all wrong. He, he, he sins. He's, he's so imper... You know, you begin to doubt your own self. Look to Jesus. Let him be the looking, the mirror. Don't look at yourself. Don't look at another. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and you will see your eternal life in him. That's the only way to do it. That's faith in Jesus Christ. And all the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ. Look to Christ. In Christ. And you will gain faith and assurance of your predestination, of your election. It's tempting to look to others like when I was going to seminary. uh, I think I told you this once before. I thought that when I went to seminary, we were going to have such great discussions. I was going to learn from the teachers, and they were going to learn from me, and we were going to just, just, you know. It, it didn't work out that way because when I got there and I started attending classes, I realized that I didn't know anything. <laughs> what, what they were talking about, I did not even, I, I, I couldn't, I didn't know it. I didn't understand it. I, I never heard it before. Uh, if I did hear it, I, I, I didn't understand it fully. And all I did was listen and learn and learn and learn and read and read thousands of pages each semester, thousands of pages and stuff. And it just... Uh, and the temptation is that you look to that to the, to the professors that know so much more than you do and to the, uh, to the writers of these incredible books uh, with all kinds of things in them uh, that you never even thought of from the Word of God. How do they get this from the Word? I, don't, I didn't see that there, but they see it and they get pages and pages of it. And it's, it's tempting to look to them for... To grow your faith, for your your confidence, for your assurance. And I must admit, I fell into that uh, a lot, where you start quoting from one and quoting from another, and your arguments are all from men, rather than from Christ, from his word. Look to Jesus. Don't look to another, and you will gain confidence. And then also, and it's interesting, not only will you gain confidence that you are written in the book of life, and Revelations is called the Lamb's Book of Life. It's not a literal book. Uh, it's figurative. Uh, it's, uh, the book of life is a figurative expression referring to God's eternal counsel, particularly his counsel of election. That's what the book of life is. It's not a literal book that, you know, is in heaven somewhere on a pedestal somewhere and you look and see if, whose name is in it. But it, it, it's referring to a figurative expression that refers to God's eternal counsel. 
especially pertaining to predestination, to the elect. The elect are in the book of life. And I I pointed out from that Philippians passage that not only can you see yourself there, but you can see others that are there too. Yeah. Let's, Let's be together here. We're all in the Lamb's book of life. We're all elect. We're all predestinated. You can see that. You're not infallible with it. You can make wrong judgments, yes. People can be hypocrites and they can hide themselves very well. But generally speaking, you can know. As Paul points out in Philippians, he knew about these fellow workers, these women, these other folk, in the Lamb's Book of Life. He didn't read the Lamb's Book of Life. I didn't show him a book. He knew them. And what they believed. It's also very interesting, too, this Lamb's Book of Life, this idea of the Lamb's Book of Life, that uh, your names, it says in the scripture, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Think about that. That's personal, isn't it? When you sign your name to something, that's your signature, and it represents you, and only you. So God's sort of getting personal with us when he says you're written in the Lamb's Book, my book, You're written in my book of life. Your name, your personal name, you, Peter, are written down in my book. That's precious. That's very precious. And then finally, the temptation in regard to predestination. What is, what's that? A temptation in regard to predestination. This is important. I mean, everything I've said is important because it's, it's true. It's from the scripture. Uh, but this is maybe something that, it, it, it'll become obvious when I point it out to you, but it's not so obvious that you are tempting God by uh, not using the means that God has given to his predestinated people. You are tempting him, you're provoking him to anger. Let me just read this to you for get into it just for a minute. Uh, in the temptation in regard to predestination, then, which there is scarcely any other more dangerous, we are confronted by the fact that God promises apply to all the faithful. He says, ask an Everyone who asks shall receive. Now we're getting to that teaching in Luke. You were wondering, where's that coming from? When Jesus, when the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, and he taught them how to pray, and then he gave those examples. And he said, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. And then finally, with the whole church, Bullinger points out in the second Helvetic Confession, we pray, Our Father who art in heaven, both because by baptism we are engrafted into the body of Christ, and we are often fed in his church with his flesh and blood unto eternal life, the Lord's Supper he's talking about. Thereby being strengthened, we are commanded to work out our salvation with fear and trembling according to the precept of Paul. And so what's going on here? Well, there's two ways to, uh, to, to think of uh, predestination or to deny it. Theoretically, 
and practically. Now, most of us here, I don't think any of us here would deny it theoretically. In other words, I don't believe in election. I don't believe in predestination. I don't believe in God's sovereign choice in my salvation. I believe in human free will. I believe in fortune or chance. I believe that I am the maker of my own destiny, that kind of thing. That's theoretical. That's a denial of predestination, theoretically. But, and, and that's not where we're at. But practically, practically we deny predestination, we tempt God, and we sin in a practical manner. Well, what's that mean? <clears throat> uh, can you give me an example of that? A practical denial that forms the dangerous temptation regarding predestination that Bullinger is concerned to address. Yes, I can give you an example. Uh, The temptation is that we become careless and indifferent to the means by which God is pleased to carry out his decree of predestination. Remember I talked about The coupling of decree, the decree of election, and the means by which we are, we partake of that doctrine. We believe that doctrine. We apply that doctrine. Well, what is one means? And Jesus points it out to his disciples in Luke chapter 11, for example. One of the main temptations is that we do not remain consistent or constant in our prayer. That's the means by which we adorn and adore the decree of God in our election. Prayer. You don't pray? You are sinning. You are in the dangerous temptation of decoupling the means by which God shows you that you are his elect, that you are his child. Remember what Jesus said uh, in Luke chapter 11. I say to you, verse 9, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For every one that asks receives, and every one that seeks finds, and to him that knocks it shall be opened. And he gives the example of someone banging at the door in the middle of the night, Give me some three, three loaves of bread because I, I, I need this for a guest, and a very important guest of mine, a relative maybe or something like that. And he says, no, go away. Uh, well, I'm just, you know, I'm in bed. I'm with my kids. Just go away. And you just keep on knocking. You keep on asking. You keep on going. Finally, the person, not because of what you're asking for, but because this, uh, this consistent knocking and asking, And that's what Jesus is trying to teach us, uh, trying to teach his disciples and us. That you must ask in order to receive. 
You must knock and it will be open to you. Neglecting prayer, the means by which God has decreed his election upon you personally that are in his Lamb's book of life. Neglecting prayer is a grave sin. And it's, it's tempting God because it's, sh- it's saying to God that the, means through, that the means that you have ordained for us to use as the elect and chosen and special people of God, I don't care about. I don't, I don't do so much or at all or I forget about it until Sunday or whatever it may be. You are provoking God to his faith. You are despising his doctrine of predestination, of election, by not praying. Because that's the means by which he has decreed his election to you. Prayer. Again, ask, and it shall be given. Seek, ye shall find. Knock. And it shall be over. He's talking about prayer. And continuous prayer. Reoccurring prayer. Not giving up. Praying without ceasing kind of prayer. uh, Without ceasing means reoccurring. Again and again and again. That doesn't mean babbling on all day long. It means reoccurring. Bullinger, Bullinger adds to this not only prayer, but preaching. Word must be heard. Neglect the word. Neglect the preaching of the gospel is another means by which the elect are ministered unto, are shown their election, are shown their predestination by prayer, by the preaching, and not only the preaching, but also the sacraments, he adds to that. Baptism means engrafted, being grafted, and the Lord's Supper, as off as you do this, as off as you do this, remembering to me. You must do this in remembrance of me and what I did at the cross and what I'm doing for you. You must participate in these means and never, ever, ever neglect them. When you do, when, when people just, oh, let's give up worship for the Super Bowl. Let's give up worship because I feel like I'm on vacation. Let's give up whatever it may be. You're provoking God to his face. He's giving you means by which you can know his decree that you are his child. And you're neglecting it. That's a sin. And it's a dangerous temptation that we all fall into from time to time. Hopefully it's just very little. Never. Brothers and sisters... Think of it this way. Decree and means always, always belong together. And that's how you're going to understand more and more your election and your predestination. Let's pray. Heavenly Lord, we are thankful for your word. Your word is truth. There's so much richness therein. 
Uh, and this doctrine of predestination is, my, oh, my, it's so rich. And uh, it's wonderful. And the, the, these promises of God, all the promises just come to life uh, by uh, realizing this doctrine of election that, uh, that we are chosen by our God to live with him forever and ever. Now, let's use the means by which you communicate to us better and better our election our predestination. In Jesus' name, amen.